you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. Check one, two. I can't hear myself through the headphones. You cannot? Uh Uh-uh. Okay, are you there? Okay, so there's a little bit of difficulty on my end, but I think it should be fine. So, Tui, I'll grab you if we need anything. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Can you hear yourself okay in headphones? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to just ask you a couple questions that have nothing to do with what we're going to talk about so we can keep getting levels with Randy. (laughs) Tell me about a pet you've had in your life. A pet I've had. I, in college, had a pet rat. Hmm. And uh, I was in psychology at the time. And uh, for that class, I was required to tr- uh, train either a virtual or real rat. So I got a rat from a pet store and I trained him to ride a skateboard. You did not. A little tiny miniature skateboard. <laughs> I, li- I live a very exciting life. How do you train a rat to ride a skateboard? One step at a time. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> so it's conditioning. So it's 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 uh, you know like like classical psychology. You talk about operant and classical conditioning. So you you positively reinforce the rat for doing each behavior that approximates the behavior you're trying to get to. Every time it touches the board, you feed it until it's until it just naturally puts its foot on the board, waiting to waiting to be fed. And then you don't feed it until it stands up. And then you don't feed it until it moves its. Foot. Yeah, so you just continue reinforcing the behavior that you wanted to do until it just does it. Man, I feel like I thought I had done great work by getting my dog to roll over. And <laughs> here you are training rats to skateboard. That's it's, incredible. Uh, it was a fun class. People people trained rats to uh, play basketball. It's like a little tiny, pick up a little ball and put it in a hoop. People trained rats to like run a maze. People trained it. It was a very exciting class. <laughs> okay, will you check in with Randy and see if we're rolling and the levels All right, are Randy, good? Randy, how are we- he says, we're okay, good. great. I really hope he got that rat skateboard stuff on uh, on the record. We heard from Joe Trainer in the first episode. He doesn't train rats anymore. He actually studies the behavior of people after disasters. He's a sociologist from the University of Delaware, and he told us about how after disasters, most people act as the best versions of themselves, that they operate at the height of their moral code. That may be the most uplifting thing that we've learned while reporting this podcast. And this story about the skateboarding pet rat, it actually wasn't part of our interview. Arwen Nix was just trying to make sure his voice levels were right. But as we researched the question of who prepares and who doesn't, it reminded us of the rat. I mean, I can tell you that this earthquake is going to happen. And we can cite the science, we can talk to engineers, we can tell you again about all the fires that are going to break out. But fear isn't going to motivate you. When it comes to taking action, rats and humans are surprisingly similar. We don't want to do something unless we're going to get a reward. I promise you, that rat didn't dream of growing up and learning to skateboard when he was a little baby rat. But he learned how. So I'm just going to say it. 
for Rat can learn to skateboard, you can get yourself ready for this earthquake. You just need the right incentive. I'm Jacob Margolis, and this is episode eight of The Big One. The Lessons. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Arwen's been obsessed with the psychology of disasters from the moment we started working on the show. That is accurate. I am obsessed with brains. I always want to know why we do the things we do. And you were freaking out about how people behave before, during, and after disasters, like as soon as we started talking about this podcast. I mean, Jacob, I wouldn't say I was freaking out, but I would say that I'm fascinated. And that's why I wanted to talk to Joe Trainer and all the other sociologists and psychologists who I called. And they told us that people are kind when a disaster happens because there's this foxhole experience, right? We all experience the same thing at the same time and we're bonded together. And so we're nice to each other. And that seemed really reassuring. But then I started kind of wondering more about why, like what is actually happening deep inside our brains when we decide to help a stranger, right? Or when we decide to go to the store and not buy water, even though we've heard on our favorite podcast that the best thing you can do for a disaster is buy water. Like what's going on in there? So I decided to call up Tally Sherratt because she's a professor of cognitive neuroscience and I've read a bunch of her books. I love what she studies and she knows this stuff. So I asked her why. What is happening in our brain? And she basically said, well, people are motivated by reward. People are motivated by positive, not by negative. Think about that little rat. Think about if Joe had tried to train that little skateboarding rat by saying, hey, if you don't skateboard, an earthquake is going to kill your whole family. So you better kickflip. Like that wouldn't have worked. Fear is not really what motivates people. I mean, I think rewards are so motivating, all sorts of rewards. It's not only money, prestige, uh, social status, all of that is extremely motivating to people on a day-to-day basis. I believe those are much stronger than fear. So Tally told me that dread is also a motivator, but under a pretty specific circumstance, like if you're given a clear choice. So she used the example of a dentist telling you that a tooth has to come out. And, you know, you go to the dentist, you sit down and he says, I can, I can do the procedure now or you can come back next week. Most people would rather just have it done now. And, and that is to avoid a whole week of dread. Seems clear cut, right? But Tally also told me that if we have a chance to procrastinate, we will probably procrastinate. So, you know, you have to clean the house. 
you think, well, maybe if I wait a little bit, someone else will clean it, right? Or something magically will happen and I won't really need to do it. Then, then perhaps people would rather kind of push things to the future. I get why a big event at the dentist would induce dread. You know, it could be painful, uh, it could be expensive, but I'm not sure why not cleaning your house doesn't induce that same level of dread. Because I just think of a dirty house, my parents coming over, my friends coming over, and just being terribly embarrassed. Yeah, but like, let's say someone says to you, Jacob, like, someone's going to come to your house one day and you don't know exactly when, then you also have this thing happening in your mind where something else unknown could happen. Like maybe Rachel gets it in her head that it's going to make her feel really good to clean the whole house. Maybe someone else will take care of it. Who knows what's going to happen? That's like waiting for the magical thing to come. But if you know that your parents are coming this weekend, your house will be clean before the weekend. That's the difference. So like, when is this earthquake going to happen? I mean, you know, I can't like give, give me you- like a, if you can't give me like today then give me like a year or a range okay so we're not ever technically overdue but it's been 160 years since we're blah 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 tell me when the earthquake is gonna happen see this is what people are thinking in their heads right now jacob like if we can't give them a specific certain date it is really hard to prepare like what are you grabbing onto that is so much uncertainty to just ask people to prepare for something not tell them when the something is coming It's part of this really big problem we have with trying to get people to do something about this. It's an example of a really difficult problem because A, you have what's what's known as temporal discounting. Temporal discounting means that people tend to put more weight and care more about the present than the future. So a great example of this is saving money. I am not good at saving money because you are basically asking you to time travel, right? Like take care of future you, save money for future you. And that's also what we're doing with this earthquake. We're saying prepare for this quake, prepare so future you is safe. We don't know exactly when it's coming, but we know you got to do something about it. Then you have the problem of people underestimating risk. So Jacob, Uh I mean, like not to be a total downer here, but you're probably going to die from heart disease or cancer. Like one of those two things is coming for you. But how often do you really think about that? Oh, and then on top of that, you have the problem that what you're trying to communicate is basically negative information. You're trying to say, oh, there's a possibility of this really, really bad event happening. Um, And we have shown that people are less likely to to learn from negative information than positive. Smoking is a really good example of this. Smokers don't react well to stop smoking or die. But what does work is showing the benefits of not smoking. So... The fact that non-smokers are more likely to get a job than a smoker, the fact that non-smokers get paid more money than smokers, those are positive things. You think about it differently. So it's not like someone saying, hey, I'm going to take your cigarettes away or death is hanging over your head. It's more like non-smokers get more money. So those are positive things you can track. Okay, honestly, I feel like not dying would rank higher than money, at least for me personally, and being healthy seems like it would be specific enough of a reward. Well, it's not a specific enough reward because we all think that we're going to be fine all the time. That's the optimism problem. I'm kind of grumpy about the fact that you're going to tell me that optimism is bad. Well, dude, I'm going to tell you that optimism is actually the best and worst thing, in my opinion, our brain does. 
The optimism bias is our tendency to underestimate the likelihood of negative events happening to us, like accidents or illness, um, and to overestimate the likelihood of positive events, such as professional success, having talented kids, and so on. What you have to understand is that humans developed optimism at the same time that we developed a sense of mortality. Optimism is what keeps us from like hiding under our beds, obsessing about death all the time. But optimism is also what tricks us into thinking that we're totally safe in a situation when we might not be totally safe, like getting into a car. We underestimate the likelihood of divorce, and we also underestimate the likelihood of a car accident, and we also underestimate the likelihood um, of us being a victim of um, a natural disaster. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what happened to my cousin Lizzie. Wait, what happened to Lizzie? My cousin Lizzie Wade, she lives in Mexico City. She's also a science journalist. She lives with her partner, Luke's, and their dog named Nena in an apartment in the Juarez neighborhood of the city. And on September 19th, 2017, she was at home. It's a normal Tuesday. She's doing her thing. I was working in my office at home and I started to feel the shaking. And, you know, since this is the anniversary of, of the 1985 one, that's the day when the city does their earthquake drill. Back in 1985, there was this catastrophic quake that destroyed the city. It was a magnitude 8.1. Mexico City, one of the world's largest, is tonight devastated after a massive earthquake which has claimed at least 3,000 lives. 10,000 people killed, thousands of structures obliterated. A second earthquake with a magnitude of 7.5 on the Richter scale struck. Homes, offices, 13 hospitals, just citywide trauma. California had predicted a powerful earthquake in Mexico. But the Mexican government didn't act on the information because earthquake planning and preparation is expensive. The whole city was traumatized by this experience in 1985. Um, and they were just so scared. Like when you'd feel a little bit of shaking, you know, it could be a truck going by your house or something that'll make your apartment building shake. Like people would just like race down the stairs, you know, despite, you know, having earthquakes as a sort of ever-present threat in California. I never had experienced that level of like visceral anxiety or panic around them before. The aftermath exposed the corruption that had been bubbling underneath the surface of the city's government for years, maybe even decades. The 1985 Mexico City earthquake showed citizens the pre-government's inability to respond to the crisis. People just saw how fragile their city had been made by, largely by corruption. You know, nobody was checking on these. There is no enforcement of building codes. You know, whoever's cousin would get the overinflated contract and then do a crappy job with substandard materials and, you know, and thousands of people died. It was a real tragedy um, and one that was perhaps not entirely preventable, but largely preventable. Local and international media criticized the political party in power at the time, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI. They eventually got booted out and Mexico implements new building codes earthquake warning alerts, and citywide drills to better prepare its infrastructure and its citizens for another quake. So, decades after all this, Lizzie's sitting at her desk, and the walls begin to shake. She knows exactly what it is. She just didn't realize how big it was going to be. It started shaking, 
And I thought, oh, it's an, earth- it's an actual earthquake. And I, my husband was sick, so he was lying down. When I called out, it's, there's an earthquake. And he was like, no, it's just a drill. And then I was like, no, it's definitely shaking. And I got under the table, um, or my desk rather, with my dog. And my husband was like, he kind of tried to get up from the bed, but it was shaking too hard um, to really go anywhere. So he ended up in a door frame watching his guitar. He's a musician, like swing back and forth and slam against the wall. I was hearing like drawers in our um, bureaus like fly open and closed, which is quite loud and scary. Um, And it just, like what I really remember was it went on for a long time. And I remember like screaming, stop, you know, like I couldn't, I could do anything about it. Just from how strong it was, like I knew it right away, this one was going to be different. The shaking stops. She and her husband grab Nena and head outside. The earthquake lasted for nearly a minute. It was a 7.1. Biggest earthquake the city had seen since 1985. And it happened on the anniversary of the quake in 1985. It was awful. Dozens of buildings totally collapsed. Roughly 300 people died. Two years later, and people are still recovering. Buildings are still being repaired. And Lizzie's perspective on how people reacted to earthquakes, on the visceral fear she saw when the earthquake alarms would ring, or on the panic when a loud truck would go by, changed. That Monday I went to a yoga class, but I just remember it's hitting me that day, like there are still people who are trapped in those buildings and probably still alive. Like it was, you know, that that was when active search and rescue operations were still going on. And... I was like completely paralyzed by that thought. I mean, I think about it many times a day, how strange it is that I'm just like cooking, you know, like chicken soup or whatever. And at the, you know, in 30 seconds, it could be over. Having your mortality taken to task by a natural disaster makes you a little less optimistic. When you take control away from people, um, then actually underestimating risk is less likely. Challenge our perceptions of control, and people begin to think in more realistic terms. Challenge our control. We start to learn. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Lizzie grew up in Southern California. She's not an earthquake denier. She knows earthquakes are real. She has her own Northridge story, all that stuff. 
but it still took her being in a massive, damaging, terrifying, deadly earthquake for her to actually shake that optimism bias. Yeah, I mean, the same thing happened for a lot of people in New Zealand after the quake there. Like I was talking to this scientist, Dr. Sarah McBride. She's a social scientist for USGS. But before she worked at USGS, she spent a good portion of her career working in communication in Christchurch. She worked with the New Zealand government for years. It's like a public information coordinator. She worked with the emergency management agency in Canterbury. It was her job to get information out about major earthquakes coming, the seismic risk in the region, telling everyone to prepare. She actually faced a lot of the same struggles that Lucy Jones faced. Your take on what the public knew, do you feel like they they were well-informed, that they knew something like this was possible? This has probably been one of the biggest questions of my career. Um, You know, I want to say yes, but I think the answer is no. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to express this. Um, I, I, you know, I think that people intellectually might understand what it means. They might go, oh, sure, yeah, we're going to get a big earthquake someday. But they don't know what that means. Uh, They don't understand that... It's not going to be just one big shake, but it's going to be thousands of shakes for months or years in the case of Christchurch. We had been trying to tell people, look, it can happen here and you should be prepared here. But I ran into skepticism in in my own government in New Zealand where I would tell people, um, hey, an earthquake can happen in Christchurch. Can we get more funding to do public education about earthquakes and being told no, an earthquake's never going to happen in Christchurch. You're you're being ridiculous. Um, you know, so it was hard to even get get my own emergency management agencies to listen to uh, seismic risk about Christchurch, let alone um, the 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 public in Christchurch. That does sound familiar, right? And Sarah does this work for years: brochures, talks, public meetings, road shows, all of that. And one day she decides, okay. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go volunteer for what the New Zealand version of the Peace Corps is. It's called Volunteer Services Abroad. And she goes out to the Solomon Islands. And that's where she is, 2,000 miles away from Christchurch, when the earthquake hits. I remember I was sitting at my desk. It was kind of an average day in the Solomons. It was a big open plan office. Um, And I just got a text message from my country manager uh, saying that there had been a big earthquake in Christchurch, fatalities expected. Um, And then uh, the next text was, do you want to go back to Christchurch? And she's like, yeah, of course. You know, I, I got on the first plane I could. So she's working at the command center for weeks, doing community response, trying to help people, working in public information. And it's awful, right? Like Sarah... Sarah had friends who died in this earthquake. So after doing a lot of soul searching after my response in Christchurch, I I went back to the Solomons and I didn't really know what to do with myself after that. Um, Christchurch had a profound impact on me. But I knew I wanted to help. That's a lot to shoulder. Yeah, it is. And so Sarah decided she was going to get a PhD in communication. Why communication? Well, because it was a communication problem, right? She had told people the earthquake was coming, that this was a seismically active region. She told them it was going to be bad. She told people to prepare. But they weren't listening, like they didn't get it. 
I really started from a place of a combination of, of guilt and fear and anger of, of sort of kind of coming from, you know, what's wrong with people? Why are they so stupid? Like, why don't they just listen to us? We've written it all down in these booklets and it's clear, it's set out uh, about the seismic risk in Canterbury. And I wanted to know how effective our communication was or wasn't. Turns out, wasn't. I found out that I had been fundamentally mistaken in a lot of the assumptions I made about uh, communication. Uh, the booklets we created, some of them had the readability level of, you know, someone, a 23-year-old, someone who has a science or engineering a bachelor's degree, essentially. Like when you, when I read these booklets, they were highly technical. They were full of acronyms and jargon, um, or they were full of really, you know, inflammatory language like prepare now or pay later. Um, uh, you know, really, really uh, fatalistic language. And they didn't have any basic framing devices like storytelling or having people tell their stories of what big earthquakes are like um, and how to get through those experiences. Um, so we really failed on a lot of uh, fundamental communication principles. And that was a, a couple of very tough months um, finding this out and reflecting on it and realizing I had really, uh, I had failed the people of Christchurch. I'm sorry. So what are you what yeah. are you thinking of right now? Like you, what's bringing you to tears? I don't know. Just um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm I, uh, just just feeling that failure. Uh, when you are faced with your best intentions and realizing your best intentions were actually um, the reverse of what you should have been doing and that there were huge failures there. That's a bitter pill to swallow. We feel like if we just scare people enough, they'll do something about it. And that's not what the literature is suggesting at all. So what should we be doing? Well, I, I think we need to have more honest conversations. And I think we need to use a bit more, and I hate to say it, but we need to use a bit more humor um, and uh, lightness in our approach. I think we can be better at telling stories of, yeah, people who survived, but they survived because they took extraordinary action before the event, before the earthquake, to prepare for that. Wait. I thought it was all about rewarding people and that's how you got them to change. But what you're telling me is that it has to do with stories too. Like what do stories have to do with it? Well, I mean, it's both things. But one thing that you have to understand is that stories are a reward. Our brains get a bunch of little chemical boosts when we hear a story. We get oxytocin, we get cortisol, we get all these different things. And those chemicals help our brains connect with the people in the story. And that's true for a story that is fiction and true for a story that is nonfiction. People go, oh, I relate to that guy. That guy, you know, 
He speaks the same way I speak. He's relatable. He tells it in a story. I understand his life. And he's not someone who seems so removed emotionally from me. He's someone who shows emotion, who shows concern, who expresses why. And that's something that's often uh, drilled out of scientists. You know, we're supposed to remove passion from our work because we don't want bias to be in our work. And we're supposed to remove personality from our work. And and the work is meant to speak for itself rather than... um, the work being an extension of who we are and part of our story. And we know a scientist who did exactly this. Jacob, do you remember Ann Brower? He said, get her first, mate. He's gone. And that was, that was the first I knew that, that other people on the bus had not made it. Of course. So after the strangers help her out of the bus... They move her out into the street and they can see that Anne is in really bad shape, right? Like her leg is broken. Compound fracture, the kind where you can tell. She can't stand, she can't move. I mean, she can barely stop passing out. And so they make this makeshift gurney. They put her in the back of a flatbed truck and they take her off to the hospital in Christchurch. And when they get there, the hospital is totally overwhelmed. They've set up a triage station in the parking lot. There are injured people flooding in from every direction. And a doctor treats Anne in the parking lot, gives her some morphine for the pain that she's in. But it's a while before she even gets to go inside. Like, the whole thing is just chaos. What was wrong with the hospital? Why couldn't they just see her? Well, there are aftershocks that just keep happening. And so the hospital doesn't know what's going on. They're on a boil water warning. Nurses and doctors are totally fatigued with the number of patients coming in. And with all these injured people, it actually took more than a week for doctors to even recognize, like, in just how bad a shape Anne was. And she was in really bad shape. She had a severed tendon in her hand. Her pelvis was broken in like eight to 12 places. And her leg was so badly broken that she nearly lost it. And of course, like, as she's getting treated for all her injuries, she can't stop thinking about what happened. She can't stop thinking about being on the bus, about the collapsed building, the bricks falling onto the bus, and everyone around her dying. So over the months that followed, the coroner started an inquest of all the deaths from the earthquake, all 50 of them. And every time there were new results, they were published in the local newspaper, the press. And there was one day when... Um, He investigated the deaths on the bus, and it was duly reported as um, uh, the, you know, basically the mechanisms of death, you know, broken neck, you know, whatever. Um, uh, But there was nothing in the coroner's inquest about what caused the broken neck. There were the medical causes, but not the physical causes, which had nothing to do with the earthquake and everything to do with the building. So what did Anne do? So I I wrote a letter to the newspaper, which, you know, back in 2011, there were letters to the editor were still pretty valuable currency. And I just said, yeah, we know how they died. That's not a mystery. But... um, someone should have the courage to tell us why they died. Because why is a much more interesting question. I mean, this, what happened to the building was entirely foreseeable and entirely foreseen and entirely predicted. 
So, but not prevented. So if, if you expect something to happen, um, it's pretty unacceptable that you do nothing to prevent it. So this is what's going through Anne's mind when she has her trips to physical therapy, when an aftershock hits, when she has to go to another doctor and another, and then there's another aftershock, and she's feeling really terrible. And one day, she gets a text message. From the hospital saying that His Holiness the Dalai Lama wished the honor of my company. The Dalai Lama. Yeah, dude, the Dalai Lama. So no-brainer, she went to meet with him. A lot of people were running around Christchurch at the time saying they could have died, they could have died, they could have died. They were so close to death, blah de blah de blah blah And I always, I had pretty limited, limited sympathy for that. But, um, and the Dalai Lama said, you know, the point isn't that you didn't, that you could have died. The point is that you didn't die. And so move on from that. His Holiness tells Anne, Find something to focus on. And so the first thing Anne thinks of is... Better building codes. So she writes more letters. Letters to the editor. She writes opinion pieces. She writes to Parliament. She showed them the bodies. Specifically, her body. And the people she was on that bus with. I wrote submissions to the ministry, which the ministry... Um, I, and suggested that they take special account of, of brick buildings... Nah, that didn't work. I wrote a submission to Parliament suggesting that they in in because they were considering rewriting the Building Act, so they were they were rewriting the Building Act anyway. I was just suggesting how they should do it. And in all her letters, in these op eds, she made it very personal. Like, listen to this: at twelve fifty one p.m. on the twenty second of February, twenty eleven, twelve people died beside me. The parapet and facade of an unreinforced masonry building on the main street of Christchurch, New Zealand, crushed the bus I was riding. I'm the only one left, the lucky 13th. My leg, my hand, my soul will never be the same. Did Anne going personal, did Anne talking about just this awful event and what it meant to her, did it make any sort of an impact? Well, I mean, like, not at first. People were reading it, people were sharing it on social media, but... The parliament wasn't doing anything. I mean, they weren't taking Anne's suggestions, at least. And she was really pissed off about that because she could see the problem. Like, she lived the problem. She survived the problem. And she was being very specific with her recommendations, but felt like nobody with the power to protect people was actually listening to her. But then she saw that the Minister of Buildings was going to be at this conference in Auckland. So she was like, okay, I'm going to write another piece for the newspaper, basically to get his attention, at least enough so that he would meet with her if they were both at the same conference. And it worked. She got her five minutes. And he said, you know, I I sympathize with your idea of fairness, that um, people inside a building have sort of signed an implicit contract of, you know, they are taking a risk when they walk into a, or they're accepting the risk when they walk into the building, but the risk um, of, of brick buildings is to the people outside, and that's, a, that's more of a public issue. A lot of what Anne's saying there kind of echoes what we were saying in episode six about the big steel buildings as well. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I mean, they were talking about that same kind of idea, right? Like, who takes on the risk? Who is responsible? Who is in charge? And her argument is that the government needed to mandate that these unreinforced masonry buildings get fixed, that they dealt with them. They had to make it a law. And the guy is listening to her, and he seems like he's like, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. But by the end of the conversation, she had this feeling that he was kind of just like, going to blow her off. So a few days go by. And Anne is feeling pretty down, like she's made all this effort to what seems like no reward when the phone rings. And it's the minister's office calling and saying, hey, do you want to go get coffee with him? So he told me how he was going to change the bill and that he was going to have the time for... um, for the most dangerous buildings in the most dangerous, uh, the highest risk, highest seismic risk areas of the country um, and putting greatest priority on uh, the main thoroughfares. So where there's a lot of public risk to the public, basically. Um, and he asked, would I be willing to announce, the, you know, accompany him to the announcement? So now, Jacob, there is actually a paragraph in the Earthquake-Prone Building Amendment Act that focused on the 2,000 most dangerous buildings across New Zealand, like the building that collapsed onto Anne, onto that bus. This legislation made it so they all had to be fixed, all 2,000 of them. That's all because of Anne. It is because of Anne. Like, I don't know. When I was talking to her about it, she... She was proud but humble at the same time. But I'm just going to tell you that people unofficially refer to this, even though it's just a paragraph in an amendment, they refer to it as the Ann Brower Amendment, which is pretty cool. So if there was one thing that you could say to people who are listening to a podcast who are obviously engaged, they want to know what they need to do to prepare for a major earthquake. What's the message that you want to hit home? If you're listening to this podcast, um, know that if you make it through, which you probably will make it through the initial shakes, this is going to be a hard journey for you. This is going to be tough. Uh, But if you work with the people around you, your community, your friends, your family, your neighbors, you're eventually going to come on the other side of this. This is going to be something that will happen for a long time. So if it's a really big earthquake, you may have aftershocks for months or years to come. And some of those aftershocks may be more damaging than that initial big quake that you have. If you're more prepared, you're going to suffer less. That's really what it is. If, if you have food, if you have water, if you have your emergency supplies, you're going to limit the amount of unnecessary suffering that you have to face during those early days of response. This is why we have a story, a narrative where we speak directly to you and walk you through what it could be like for you when this big earthquake hits. It's why we included not just the science, but the stories of the scientists who have informed what we know about a major quake hitting here. Honestly, it sounds cheesy. We've done everything we've done because we want you to prepare, and we know that is really hard. Because it's been really hard for us, too. Will all this motivate you? Who knows? 
In the next episode, we return to you, our hero, and imagine an earthquake-ready world. If you've gotten this far and you're still procrastinating on getting ready for the big one, stick around for the tips after the credits. Misha Youssef is our lead producer. Arwen Nix is our sound designer and executive producer. Mary Knopf is our assistant producer. Megan Garvey is our editor. Our music's by Andy Clausen. Our engineers are Sean Corey Campbell and Valentina Rivera. And our illustrations, including the tips with the cartoon Misha, are by the one and only Dan Carino. Design and website work, including our beautiful data tools, are by Dana Amahir and Stephanie Kraft. This episode was reported by Arwen Nix and me, Jacob Margolis. It was written by Arwen Nix and Mary Knopf. Alex Laughlin does our marketing. Thanks to James Kim for having the best head of hair in the building. If you have a question for us, you can email us at thebigone at kpcc.org. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm Julia Paskin, your host for Weekend Edition on LAist. It is my job to get you the news every Saturday and Sunday morning so you can start your day engaged and informed, even on the weekend. But this place is too big and interesting to stay home, so I'm here to motivate you to explore L.A. from the best hikes to the most interesting events. I'll bring you the stories and the people behind them. L.A.ist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Hey, Big One listener. It's me, Misha Youssef. This episode, we talked all about rewards and incentives. So we want to give you one tip, and it's more like a task. Make sure to take a picture or write a description of what you're doing to prepare for the earthquake. Use the hashtag, the big one, and share it on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever, and we'll retweet it, like it, and share it. Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. If there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.